0: Hello everyone, welcome to InterSTEM Talks episode eight. We hope you guys are all doing well and that your summers are off to a good start and hopefully you've had a great 4th of July and just generally um, getting some rest uh, during the summer because the past year has been very different, requires a lot of adaptability and persistence and all of that. And so uh, hopefully you're just having a chance to spend time with family and get involved in your other interests. One of the things that, or, or actually the main thing we're gonna be doing today in this episode is gonna be delving into some uncommon diseases. Actually, that's kind of a little bit stretching the truth. Two of them are more common diseases, but then uh, we'll highlight three other diseases that are um, really not not super common. And ones that's actually, one is actually just super um, uh, rare that, some people I've never heard of. So we'll be delving into those a little bit um, for vast majority of the time. And, um, you know, being that Interstem STEM is focused around these things, we hope that this is useful for the summer where you're just exploring and any of the interests that you have. So, um, By the way, I don't want to uh, forget this at all. I don't want to leave my co-host out. Um, I'm joined by Priyanka today. Bye.
1: Uh, My name is Priyanka, and I'm Anderson, uh, and I'm co-president along with Andre of the Irvine Testament chapter.
0: Yep, so um, uh, I myself am excited to uh, start the podcast. So let's just start off with the the first disease. We'll kind of be um, talking about these diseases like individually, I guess, Um, but we, so basically what we did is ahead of time, we, we got a chance to get to know these diseases better and explore them almost in a, um, in not, not not like a case study format, but uh, we, we did our research and so we just want to um, convey and forward some of that information to you. So the first disease, um, honestly, unfortunately super common, um, is Alzheimer's and dementia. and. The reason that I'm grouping both of them together is because um, just to start, dementia is the grouping of all symptoms that are related to forgetfulness and, and difficulty and problem solving and anything that you can kind of think of that comes to mind of dementia and Alzheimer's. Dementia is a grouping of those type of symptoms and behavioral as components, but Alzheimer's is a much more specific and most common cause of Alzheimer's. So with that said though, dementia is not just limited to Alzheimer's disease, of course, there's other forms of dementia uh, and these forms basically cause dementia. Um, There's vascular dementia, mixed dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies and uh, frontotemporal dementia. And all of these reside in you can say the overarching grouping of uh, dementia terminology, so that's just like an overview of well, what, what's the difference between them what's the. Um, structuring like what, what's the terminology of those two diseases and how are they interconnected now going off of that alzheimer's disease is currently known to. Um, Be caused by the abnormal buildup of proteins in and around brain cells. So I guess it's it's very similar to the neurological equivalent of cancer in some sense. Um, because instead of cells, there's an abnormal buildup of protein. It's kind of it's abnormal. It, it's not intended for the brain to have such a large, massive, rapid accumulation of proteins in the way that it's um, observed in Alzheimer's disease. So one of the proteins involved is called amyloid. The amyloid deposits basically uh, form these plaques around brain cells. Um, And those plaques are going to be affecting a brain, if you're going to look at an Alzheimer's brain, like um, you can actually pull up some good pictures online compared to a healthy, kind of like a a control variable brain. You'll notice a difference in that there's um, those plaques around brain cells. And then another difference is there's another protein called tau. And tau, um, there's deposits of tau, which form tangles also around brain cells. So you'll, you'll notice both of those things. And then lastly, there will also be like enlarged ventricles that appear on the brain. So those are some of the things that cause Alzheimer's disease. And those are some of the things that you would probably observe if you were to, I guess, look at this disease um, in your free time or anything like that. Another thing that I found um, kind of interesting or at least relevant to to what I'm talking about is that the risk of Alzheimer's and, and or, I guess, vascular dementia is actually, at least so far, what what they can observe is that it's increased by different conditions that damage the heart and blood cells. So that can include anything from heart disease um, and diabetes to like high blood pressure or high cholesterol. And so um, those are just increased risks, I guess, that can, cause or at least aid in the development of Alzheimer's. And so for vascular dementia, that kind of makes sense. There is a link, Um, but Alzheimer's, I I thought that was interesting. Um, Another thing that was recently in the news and was one of the main reasons that I wanted to make this uh, a focal point of today's discussion is very recently as of June, 2021, the FDA approved, um, I might butcher this drug's name, anticonumab, for the treatment of some cases of Alzheimer's disease. Basically, it's the first drug in the U.S., or from what I can understand the world, to treat Alzheimer's. It's not a cure, but it targets and removes amyloid plaques, and those were some of the, the proteins that we were talking about that cause Alzheimer's. So within that drug, there's different substances. Now, I have them written down here in front of me. There's uh, Donor puzzle rivastigmine. I I cannot pronounce these galantamine. They they all prevent an uh, enzyme called. Um, this is actually kind of an important enzyme. So it's called acetylcholinolesterase, which is from breaking down acetylcholine. And so when you have a, a, acetylcholinesterase. That means that there's going to be a higher concentration of acetylcholine in the brain, and acetylcholine is involved in communication between nerve cells. So if you have that, if you have that uh, present, I guess it can ease some symptoms of Alzheimer's for a while. And although it's not a temporary solution, I mean, although it's not a permanent solution, it is a, I guess, a temporary one that the FDA did approve. The only thing that I guess can be noted here is that the efficacy of it has kind of been questioned recently because it wasn't expected, I guess, necessarily to be approved in the way that it was. So that's, I guess, just some things on treatment. Of course, all these diseases are being mentioned because there's still so much more to do in learning about the diseases and how we can treat them. Another thing that's unfortunate, but you know, prevalent and important in society and in our society is that's actually a leading cause of death in America. And so it's the sixth leading cause of death, but that ranking has been increasing uh, recently with more more, um, just patients, um, unfortunately being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. This doesn't include um, dementia, but that is also of course um, involved as a major cause of death. Um, And then lastly, this was some history that I found out about Alzheimer's, which I kind of found interesting. I'm normally not a history geek or anything. That's not my forte, but there was a German doctor named Alois Alzheimer, hence um, its naming. And he first observed what he believed to be a, a disease or a condition in 1906. So this was not truly recorded or observed, until 1906 from what I can understand. And so he described a patient who had memory loss and problems with thinking, problem thinking in particular. And so after his after the death of the patient, the doctor noticed that parts of the brain were shrunken and he, he notated a lot of the things that um, were familiar with, with, with brains that have Alzheimer's disease. So that's, that was, I guess, like the first observation of it. And um, I guess I was like the last fact that I thought was interesting, related to Alzheimer's and um, dementia. And so our next disease, actually I'll, I'll let Priyanka take over the next. Uh,
1: so the next disease is a disease called myasthenia. And this is a pretty rare uh, chronic autoimmune neuromuscular disease. Um, and so basically it's, uh, un- unfortunately it's very rare. Unfortunately, it can have some, uh, pretty devastating effects and essentially what this, um, disease it causes is, uh, weakness in the skeletal muscles. And what happens is, uh, d- diagnosis of myasthenia isn't, uh, unfortunately the easiest. So the longer people go without getting it diagnosed and the more, basically the more activity they're exposing themselves to and going through, um, it, the, condition of the disease essentially worsens as, you know, they're, they're continuing to uh, live, you know, the normal active life of a, essentially a normal person. Um, however, uh, by taking periods of rest um, after a quick diagnosis, this disease can uh, fortunately be reversed um, to a certain extent. And so essentially uh, going more into what exactly myasthenia causes and it's centered around, Um, The muscles that it affects are responsible for multiple functions, but the most essential ones are obviously breathing and um, the ones involving any sort of movement of the body, um, basically the arms and legs. And so what myasthenia gravis uh, does to these is um, that it attacks certain tendons and joints first and uh, as a result of certain uh, sometimes chemical differences in the brain, sometimes hormonal differences, um, and as a result, it causes them to worse than others did before, uh, over time. And it essentially gets to the point where, you know, you can physically see, for example, in certain patients, drooping of the face, uh, because their muscles are just not able to hold up. Right. If, it, if, even if they try to do something as trivial as make a certain expression, their, their facial muscles just can't support that. And so going a little bit into the name, because, um, it's not a very, um, a straightforward name. So, the name itself, myasthenia, uh, is not actually the full name of the disease. It's actually myasthenia gravis. And it's based, this is a Latin and Greek name. And uh, in origin, it means grave or serious muscle weakness. Um, and so, that's, I guess, a little bit, a little background info about, uh, I guess, the technical meaning of the name. Um, as for a cure to this disease, there is unfortunately no known cure for it, uh, but there are currently lots of therapies uh, in the works. Um, and most cases of myasthenia gravis are, you know, not as horrible. Um, so with therapy, uh, the prognosis for most patients can often be extended uh, significantly. Uh, and the available treatments control symptoms um, of myasthenia gravis, and they also usually allow people to have a pretty high quality of life that you know uh, a normal person can enjoy. And the prognosis is a normal life expectancy. So going into symptoms and how people can often tell. Uh, The onset of the disorder, it tends to usually be pretty sudden, and so symptoms are not, as I stated before, usually immediately recognizable, Um, and the degree of muscle weakness involved can also vary greatly among individuals, so it's also that often, that makes it harder for doctors to also diagnose, because uh, it can vary so much between, uh, from patient to patient. However, we, uh, like I said, as I stated before, One of the biggest symptoms is drooping, usually drooping of one or both eyelids, and this is medically known as ptosis. Uh, Weakness of the eye muscles is another symptom, um, and this is called ocular myasthenia. Um, In in this case, sometimes with certain patients, it'll only affect their eyes, and it may not even extend to other parts and muscles of the body. Uh, Another symptom is blurred or double vision, known medically as diplopia. Uh, Changes in facial expression, difficulty swallowing, impaired speech, known as dysarthria, and general weakness in the arms, fingers, neck, and legs are, is also another common symptom of myasthenia gravis. So, talking about this disease, it's really important to know something specific called the uh, called a myasthenic crisis, and this is basically a medical emergency, and it occurs. It can occur any time. Any, at any point uh, from the onset of the disease. And it's basically a medical emergency that occurs when the muscles that control your breathing weaken to the point where individuals might require a ventilator to help them breathe. Uh, and at this point, obviously, hospitalization is imminent and it's often triggered by infection, stress, surgery, or any sort of negative reaction to medications uh, that may be involved as part of the treatment plan for their current stage of myasthenia gravis. Uh, approximately 15 to 20 percent of people who are diagnosed with myasthenia gravis uh, experience at least one myasthenic crisis during uh, the onset of their disease. Um, however, up to about half of the total uh, diagnosed population um, can experience uh, myasthenic crisis. Unfortunately, uh, certain medications actually uh, have been shown to cause myasthenia myos- my- gravis. So. Um, you know, these medications are also directly linked to the cause, causation of myasthenic crises as well. So now I want to get a little bit into what causes myasthenia gravis. Um, so essentially, it's basically antibodies, because after all, myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disease. It's a chronic autoimmune disease, which means that the immune system that is normally responsible for protecting the body uh, attacks itself. As, in, as with any other autoimmune disease, the immune system is attacking itself. Uh, in the attempt to protect foreign organisms from entering. So myasthenia gravis is basically caused by an error in the transmission of nerve impulses to muscles. And it occurs when normal communication between the nerve and the muscle is interrupted at what's called a neuromuscular junction, hence myasthenia gravis being a neuromuscular disease. Um, and a neuromuscular junction is essentially the place where nerve cells connect with the muscles that those nerve cells are responsible for controlling. So neurotransmitters, basically chemicals that neurons or brain cells use to communicate information, um, are released at these sites as well. And normally, when electrical signals or impulses travel down what's called a motor nerve, uh, the endings of these nerves, the nerve endings, they release a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And I believe uh, Andre talked about this with Alzheimer's as well. And acetylcholine is essentially is responsible for binding to sites called acetylcholine receptors uh, on the muscle. And this binding uh, activates a uh, activates and causes a muscle contraction. So what happens in mice gravis is that antibodies uh, which are immune proteins produced by the body's immune system, They these a- antibodies uh, basically alter or destroy the acetylcholine receptors um, at the neuromuscular junction. And what happens, obviously, is that this prevents the muscle from contracting because, in or- like I said, in order for it to contract, the acetylcholine has to attach to the receptor, but in myasthenia gravis, those, these antibodies that the immune system releases are destroying those receptors. So this is often caused by um, antibodies that are directly correlated to the acetylcholine receptor itself, but uh, in many cases, antibodies to other proteins, such as MUSK or MUSK, muscle-specific kin- uh, kinase protein, uh, can also impair transmission at the neuromuscular junction. Uh, it's also important when we're talking about the cause of myasthenia gravis to talk about the the uh, thymus gland. The thymus gland controls immune function and it's often associated with myasthenia gravis, unfortunately. Um, and this gland, just to give a little bit of background, it grows gradually until puberty and then it gets smaller and it's basically essentially just replaced by a little chunk of fat. And so throughout our childhood, the, the thymus plays an important role in development of the immune system. And so this is where, you know, you can see the connection um, because it's responsible for producing T lymphocytes, also known as T cells. Uh, that's a type of white blood cell that protects the body from uh, various viruses and infections. However, in adults with myasthenia gravis, the thymus gland remains large. Instead of shrinking and being replaced by a fat, it still remains large. And so that's one way actually doctors can diagnose. They can often run uh, x-rays or MRIs to see uh, the thymus gland and look at the size of it. And so people with the disease typically have clusters of immune cells in their thymus gland, and they can develop something called thymomus, um, which is obviously a tumor on, on the thymus gland. And thymus are most often harmless, but they can become cancers. Um, Then that's why I haven't seen it yet, but cancer is also often, um, cancer of the thymus gland or thymus is often uh, correlated with myasthenia gravis. Uh, Lastly, I do want to touch on um, how myasthenia gravis is diagnosed, sorry. And uh, you know who is most susceptible to getting myasthenia gravis? So first of all, myasthenia gravis is usually diagnosed uh, by a physical and neurological examination. Um, a physician after reviewing a patient's medical history will you know do a, a physical examination and in a neurological, the neurological examination, they will check muscle strength because obviously that's most correlated with this disease, uh, the tone of the muscle coordination, sense of touch, and they will also check the eye movements and any drooping because that's a, a common symptom with myasthenia uh, gravis. They'll also perform something called an edrophonium test and this test basically uses injections of something called edrophonium chloride to briefly relieve um, weakness in people with myasthenia gravis. And the drug, basically what it does is, it, it, this, uh, this is tied to the cause, it actually blocks the breakdown, Edrophonium chloride blocks the breakdown of acetylcholine and it tem- temporarily increases the levels of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. And what that, essentially the point of this is for a physician to see um, and test ocular muscle weakness or basically muscle weakness of the eyes. Blood tests can also help because again, they can check for the musk K uh, antibody um, or the anti-musk K antibody because this is often something that's commonly found in individuals who have been diagnosed with myasthenia gra- gravis. Um, and so physicians can check for that as well. So yeah, that's, a, that's pretty much um, all I have to say about this very unfortunate and rare disease, but uh, it's quite an interesting disease to think about as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, uh, myas- myasthenia gravis, correct? That's the next? Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay, very interesting. Um, so that was definitely an example of a, a more rare disease. Um, that's still very interesting and, and, and relevant. Um, but as another, unco- actually as another common uh, disease, there's cerebral palsy that I wanted to focus on a little bit. Um, so just for anyone who didn't know or Is not exactly familiar or needs a refresher of this disease. Um, I want to go over the symptoms first. So cerebral palsy kind of has um, three main um, targets in terms of like symptom um, like levels or structures of symptoms. So there's muscular, developmental symptoms, and then you also see speech. Um, some speech impairments. So in terms of muscular things, there's um, difficulty walking. Anyone who has cerebral palsy will also have um, difficulty with any kind of movements with with their body that's, um, you know, if they're told to do something difficult. Um, Muscle rigidity, that's another uh, muscular component. Um, There's problems with coordination often very stiff muscles and overactive reflexes and, and muscle spasms and paralysis potentially on one side of the body, all of this is, are, are like muscular movement-related um, locomotive affecting symptoms. So um, those are some, like I'd say, those are one of the most prominent symptoms that you can observe pretty easily in most patients for developmental symptoms. There is, I was reading online, and I, I kind of didn't like the way they worded this, but let me just say it and, and explain a little bit of how I, I dislike it. They said the failure to thrive, um, failure to grow. And and so although that's true, it's just very, it's like, um, uh, it's equivalent, I think, of horrible bedside manners. Um, but There is difficulty, it is true, there is difficulty in driving for sure. This disease affects that. Um, There's there's slow growth, uh, most definitely, and there's speech delay, especially in children. And then that that segues into the last set of symptoms, which is speech, Um, there can be speech stuttering often, or just inability to speak. Um, And then there's like a tag on a bunch of other symptoms, some of which are actually very important. So there's like drooling, difficulty swallowing, uh, paralysis, as I mentioned, seizures, actually a very deadly um, or an unfortunate part of the disease, um, spastic gait and teeth grinding. There really are a myriad of, of symptoms with this disease. But um, the reason I think I'm kind of familiar with this disease, and one thing I do want to mention is part of, you know, as I'm going through cerebral palsy is that my uncle has been diagnosed with the disease ever since he was born. And so one of the things you'll notice with cerebral palsy is that um, it's caused by gene mutations while in the fetus. We don't, we really need to do a ton more research on it. There needs, there's a lot that needs to be learned um, and explored about the disease. Of course, it's very difficult to study. That's why we don't know a ton about it. Um, But we do know that there's, there's gene mutations in the fetus. Um, And so as a child, um, of course I wasn't alive, it's my uncle. So, um, but as a child, he actually had a a better time in terms of symptoms than he does now. So when he was a child, he was like getting to a point where he could almost walk, Um, you know, as, as a baby you can't walk anyways, but you know, age six, seven he was like trying to get to the level of walking or understanding people or, and, and just being on the borderline of, of having what normal society would deem as a normal life. Um, but then, you know, as time grew, it just, um, the disease just kind of, not necessarily worsened, but it didn't get better. And that was kind of the, the problem with, and that's not just his case, that's that's the case with a lot of, Cerebral palsy um, patients. So for him, he he can't he can't move. Yeah, he can move his arms. Um, you know, he he can pick up grapes and and eat some food, but he needs major assistance. He can't you know pick up his fork, and you can't feed him pasta properly. As just as an example, um, uh, you know, he's confined to a wheelchair. Um, like basically 100% of the time, except if he goes to the bathroom, or when he goes to bed, um, you know, drooling is common. At one point, there was a a major risk of seizures, and and, um, I wasn't exactly alive during that time period, but they were able to get medication for that to prevent seizures, although that medication is very strong and can bring other uh, side effects that kind of contribute to more difficulty moving and um, that type of thing. So that's kind of why I got interested in this disease a ton and why um, it's always been something I've thought about. So most of this information actually, I kind of was already familiar with anyways, just being exposed to someone in my family who had it or who has it. Um, and actually it's it's quite, um, remarkable, I guess. I share a birthday with him too. So um, just that in itself, I guess, has deepened my understanding and connection with someone who's had disease. But anyways, I don't want to get too off off track there. Um, the point of that was just connecting some of the symptoms that he had and to demonstrate what, what a real-life patient, um, what it might be like for them. You know, you're, you're kind of stripped of a life. It's a very unfortunate disease. And there's a lot of nurses and and people doing a lot the best they can, especially um, like the parents of, of these um, people and the people around them, really trying to do a lot. Um, but in terms of like treatments and cures, as I said, there needs to be a lot done. There are some um, treatments right now that are being used. Major things are just like therapy, and um, you know, being that they're not able to have a job or travel around or, or do anything that we we take for granted, being that they're not able to do those things. Uh, it's very common. At least this is with my uncle. He goes to um, like a facility every day during COVID. My, my grandparents have had to do it all on their own, but um, he goes to a facility and they kind of like it's half therapy and half just trying to get his mind to work a little bit as as much as possible, um, and just to get him doing things and not to make his life so so bore, boring, I guess. Um, but that's one form of treatment just to kind of ease the symptoms. And even if not, you know, significantly improve the, the, uh, the symptoms of the patient, also just to bring a sense that something is, is that something can be done to others around them as well. But then in addition to that, there's also some uh, medications. These can be like, for example, for muscle relaxants. So there's baclofen, that's one of the drugs. There's Dizinidine, um, and there's diazepam. Those are three drugs used to treat cerebral palsy. I'm just mentioning these drugs because if you're curious to learn more about them, please do look them up. That's where like the most interesting things will likely be. Um, and then the last thing regarding research is um, that there's a ton of research being done. You know, there's not like recently, from what I understand or what I know, there haven't been breakthroughs, but there's just a ton of forms of research with cerebral palsy. I'm going to name a few so that if you're interested, you can look them up. There's um, genetics defects research, there's white matter damage research. There's Botox research, which is actually mainly used with children, um, constraint-induced therapy, which is a form of therapy, again, mainly for children. And actually, um, it puts the stronger limb of the child in a cast, and that has an effect on their ability to work, kind of, or at least exercise. And as a child, it's very cr- uh, critical to see if you can try to do as much as possible to prevent future um, issues with the disease and um, future symptoms. Um, there's non-government research on cerebral palsy that's separate from the NIH. Um, there's, there's also um, the March of Dimes, which I participated in like a long time ago, um, but it's a nonprofit organization that carries out studies aimed at the prevention of premature birth and birth defects. So. Um, you know, that's very correlated and significant to cerebral palsy, of course. So that's a very large organization. There's also other foundations, if you're interested, um, the Cerebral Palsy Research Foundation. And so um, research, like anything neurological, I guess, these days are automatically kind of what do I say? I feel like there's already so much attention around neurological diseases, but ultimately they require more treatments and they require more cures. And so that's the goal with a um, disease like cerebral palsy. And I guess the last thing I'll just say, just to leave um, this disease off, on the, on the final note, is that although this disease is, is common, it's, it's a, it just very, it's a, an unfortunate disease. Um, but despite that, there's a wide array of spectrum for the level of symptoms you could have. You could have cerebral palsy and be able to walk around. It's possible. But then you can also be, you know, as my uncle is completely confined to a wheelchair. So that's the last thing I just wanted to say. There's a, a wide array, a wide spectrum of symptoms that the patient, um, I guess, endures. So um, that was that was a little bit about cerebral palsy. Again, if you're interested in any of those drugs, or like research aspects components, feel free to definitely research that.
1: Okay, uh, I'll be talking about Miss C, or also known as Miss A, uh, in other cases, and this is basically multi-system inflammatory syndrome. Uh, and the C and the A literally is just children and adult. So obviously, because the system, this. Sorry, not system, a uh, syndrome affects both children and adults, um, obviously misceiving uh, multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children and misceiving multisystem inflammatory syndrome in um, adults. So essentially what this uh, syndrome is, is it's a rare but very serious, unfortunately, condition um, that's associated with COVID-19 in which uh, different parts of the body become inflamed, including the heart, lungs, kidney, brain, uh, eyes, skin, and even some gastrointestinal organs, unfortunately. Uh, and as I stated, this, this syndrome um, affects both children and adults. Uh, in the case of Miss C, this, the case definition for this includes people who are younger than 21 years old, and so that's who we'd consider the patient population. Um, and the case definition or patient population for Miss A or Misa it includes people who are um, 21 or older. Um, and so, again, uh, because this is the syndrome that's directly associated with COVID-19. Well, based on what we know about this, the best way to take actions to protect yourself from getting both so this syndrome is to obviously protect yourself from getting COVID-19. Um, and that currently includes vaccination. I believe uh, if you're not vaccinated, you should definitely get on that. And uh, just generally general precautions like wearing a mask um, and social distancing. So I want to talk a little bit about the Common signs and symptoms with this. So obviously, getting COVID nineteen definitely puts you in. Um, you know, for most doctors, they'll see that and they'll say, okay, well, let's test for that. But uh, with in terms of actual symptoms, um, a fever, which is again a symptom of COVID nineteen as well, but also uh, bloodshot eyes, chest tightness, pain, um, diarrhea. You know, really feeling very fatigued, um, low blood pressure, neck pain, headache rashes, unexplainable rashes, usually, and, um, you know, extreme nausea. In terms of, again, um, diagnosis, if it, this, you know, unless you're in a situation where you need to seek emergency care, um, it, this might subside with this, uh, with the COVID case itself subsiding, Um, but you know, it's important to know when you need to seek emergency care, and these are the signs that you need to be aware of and seek emergency care for. Uh, If somebody's having trouble breathing, they're having persistent chest pain or uh, pressure in the abdominal and chest area, if they're having confusion or the inability to stay awake um, or or wake up, um, and finally, a pallid skin tone and uh, pale gray, blue-colored skin, nail beds, lips, and such. Uh, this is obviously not all the symptoms, but this is most of them, um, and you should definitely seek emergency care for this because uh, that can, at that point, it can be life-threatening. So the different main difference uh, between Miss A and Miss C is that uh, Miss C is uh, is a lot, unfortunately, more common than Miss A. Um, however, the in terms of outcomes for both. The um, outcomes for MIS-A are actually going to be more severe than mis e in most cases because, um, simply because um, of the differences with the immune systems of uh, adults in comparison to those of children, um, as well as, you know, adults being more likely to have under other under underlying medical conditions that might make it harder for, uh, you know, their body to be able to fight against the MIS-A. So I want to get into a little bit more about, um, you know, sort of what what specifically um, can be done to uh, diagnose Ms. C and Miss A? And so, basically, what doctors will do is they will, uh, you know, run something called a RT PCR or antigen test. And this is the most common mode of diagnosis, um, and it's also their way of detecting SARS CoV two or COVID as well. Um, they can also do serologic testing. Um, so, uh, serologic testing, however, it is important for serologic testing to be done before they start um, administering immunoglobulin for the SARS CoV 2 antigen test or any other sort of antibody uh, test of sort. And in terms of other uh, possible evaluations they can do to try to test for it, they can also run an epicardiogram, an electrocardiogram, uh, cardiac enzyme, or troponin. Or a b type natri- natriuretic peptide, or also known as a BNP. Uh, now I want to talk about um, the treatment. Unfortunately, there's not a lot more I can say after talking about the treatment because, um, you know, with COVID being something we're currently battling, uh, the CDC. Uh, And the WHO, as well as, you know, doctors and other medical committees in general haven't had a lot of time to look into the exact causes of MIS-A and MIS-C, other than the fact that it is directly correlated with uh, the onset of COVID-19 in a patient. So as for treatment, uh, there have really been no studies comparing clinical efficacy of various treatment options. So treatments have primarily consisted of supportive care and directed care against the underlying inflammatory process, and this is, again, what kind of causes this a and Ms. c Supportive measures and main treatment therapies include fluid resuscitation, anotropic support, respiratory support, and in certain rare and very extreme cases, extracorporeal membranous um, oxygenation, also known as ECMO, and because this is an inflammatory process that causes MIS-A, uh, you know, they, they also treat uh, some patients with anti-inflammatory measures like uh, frequent use of steroids and IVIG, which is um, basically intravenous immunoglobulin, um, which is also used in general COVID uh, treatment as well. Thrombotic prophylaxis is also used um, uh, because uh, Miss c so basically the case of, in children, is often hypercoagulable, so uh, uh, prophylaxis usually helps with any kind of hypercoagulable uh, disease. And the American College of Rheumatology has also developed um, g- uh, additional guidance for pediatric patients just in terms of taking extra care uh, and not giving them certain medications like aspirin um, because it can uh, cause potential future coronary issues in them. Thank you. Uh, that's pretty much all I It's pretty interesting uh, to look at. I think, it's, um, I think it's unfortunate we don't know a lot about the exact causes, but I hope that you know, as, um, as as the pandemic cons- uh, continues to subs- um, you know, subside and, you know, we continue to battle it and overcome it. I hope that, you know, this can, we can get over this too and we can look into mis and Ms. c so we can reduce the number of cases.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely developing disease, yeah. That, okay, so, so far we've gone over MISC, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. We've gone over cerebral palsy. Um, and then we we did the other two the diseases at the beginning, and so the last one I want to do is um, it's called Alice in Wonderland syndrome. You might have heard of it, you may have not, but it's a very rare, or or actually just generally pretty rare neurological disorder that is characterized by distortions of visual perception, the body image and generally the experience of time. So in essence, people can see things smaller than they are or they can feel like their body is larger or again, smaller, it can alter in any size. And then there's a bunch of other um, symptoms that also coincide with the um, Alice in Wonderland syndrome. And so those can also um, be experienced. Some of those are like migraines, nausea, dizziness, agitation, And other less frequent ones include, like memory loss actually, um, emotional instability, loss of limb control, um, sound sensations, like lingering sound sensations. So you can clearly see a lot of these um, symptoms are very related to neurological symptoms that you might expect for a neurological syndrome to have. In regards to the causes of this disease, the abbreviation would be AIWS. The causes for AIWS are not are not really known, um, but generally, what can contribute, or or what like these are like things that you might observe, and then you might get AIWS is like a typical migraine, a temporal lobe epilepsy, uh, brain tumors psychoactive drugs of Epstein-Barr virus infections. That's that's a mouthful, but definitely look that up if you're interested, it's pretty interesting. Um, I don't have the time in the podcast to go through that in depth, but ultimately there's no proven or effective treatment yet for this, this rare um, syndrome. However, just in terms of treatment plan that can be done as much as possible by medical professionals, that plan will consist of migraine prophylaxis and uh, migraine diet. So centered around migraine, um, like ways of treating migraine because those are the symptoms that this disease or disorder or whatever you wanna uh, terminize it as, that's what they revolve around. The most interesting thing about this disease that gives it its name is from as, as the author of Alice, Alice's Adventures in, in Wonderland, um, Lewis Carroll was the actor. I mean, not, <laughs> wait, not the actor. He was the author of the, the book. And so people um, kind of, they don't have direct evidence, but it is very possible that he was influenced by his own experience of migraine in writing the book. There's um, a moment when when Alice finds a bottle labeled drink me and when she does that she shrinks to less than a foot tall and almost like instantaneously she consumes a cake that causes her to grow very, very tall and then her head kind of like hits the ceiling. So that's something that genuinely as like a form of uh, I guess hallucination or something that you would feel, it's an, you wouldn't actually increase or anything um, in terms of height, but that's something that the patient might feel like very intensely. And people think that 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 might've been influenced by um, Carol's own experiences kind of, and including that in the, um, in the book. So that's where, where it gets its name, Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Ultimately, that that actually wraps up all the syndromes, there or syndromes, diseases, disorders, um, impairments. We hope that this provided um, a lot of just exposure or general insight to maybe spark interest in one of these diseases. Because if you are, then I would I would say the next steps. Um, you know, all all of us being high school students that want to learn more. And I really, hopefully, fascinated by this this kind of stuff. Um, at least if you're into medicine or or biology and those relating subjects, then the next step is to take this to um, you know research or um, other programs. So if you're really really interested in cerebral palsy, well then just like start watching some videos on on research that's being conducted or read some articles and then dive a little deeper. Maybe next summer you can find a program that. Uh, goes into neurological disorders, or maybe it's uh, revolving around autoimmune diseases. So um, the purpose of this podcast really was to just give some insights into some of the routes you could that you could take, and then um, allow you, or or just give you, I guess, a, a little bit of a drive to um, move forward. I guess with that. Um, we hope you guys really did enjoy, and we will try to um, film the next podcast episode within two to three weeks, so definitely stay tuned for that. Thank you all for tuning into past podcast episodes. Um, we have so far seven past episodes. This makes it eight, so you can go check them out on Spotify, Google, Anchor.fm uh interstem talks you can join the discord server all that good stuff that's of course available to you and if you live in Irvine Tustin please consider joining our chapter we do blogging um, mentorship um, of course podcasting and other opportunities that are related to interstem so thank you everybody and we hope to see you at the next podcast thank you bye-bye
1: Bye.